I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 will be in verses 1 through 22 this morning as we look at Jesus, an unexpected king. He comes as king, but perhaps not the king we would picture. As we walk through this text together this morning, we'll see this central truth that Jesus isn't the king we'd create, but he is a king who is able to do far more than anything we could imagine. He's not the king we'd create, but he's a king far greater than we can imagine. So Matthew 21, I'll read the first 11 verses now. Follow along as I read, please. Now when Jesus and his disciples drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. John chapter 11, one of Jesus's friends is ill, a man by the name of Lazarus. When Jesus would travel to Jerusalem, he would travel to the town of Bethany. He knew a a family there, and you know their first names anyway, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And typically when he would go to Jerusalem, he would stay at Bethany with his friends. So we followed Jesus south. He spent much of his life in the northern area of Israel here in Capernaum. He's traveled south and then east across the Jordan River, and he's just crossed the Jordan. Last week we found him in Jericho, 15 miles from Jerusalem. And John chapter 11 tells us that Jesus has come to the town of Bethany, where his friends live. Bethany is about two miles outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus would travel to and from the city and stay there with his friends. Well, on this particular occasion, the, the event that brings him there is he hears that Lazarus is sick. But for some reason, we don't know exactly Jesus delays going to help his friend. So by the time he shows up, Lazarus is dead. And not only dead, he's been dead for four days. By this time, he's, he's rotting in the grave, likely uh, reeking of death, decomposing body. And so when Jesus shows up, Mary and Martha, you can imagine his, his sisters are incredibly sad. And and Jesus shows up and they said, why didn't you come earlier? And Jesus speaks some remarkable words before demonstrating that this is true. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he's dead, yet will live. It's a dead man rotting in the grave. When Jesus speaks these words, they're met with somewhat of a mixed response from Mary and Martha. The crowd, though, is completely skeptical. It's in this moment that we have the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And then Jesus goes to the tomb and he speaks the words, Lazarus, 
come out. And out of this tomb comes a literal mummy. Lazarus is still wrapped in the burial clothes and he comes out all wrapped up. And this man who's been dead for days comes out and Jesus heals him. So John tells us that six days before Passover, Jesus is at Bethany with his friends. And he's gone there to heal Lazarus. Now you can imagine a a miracle on this level is the kind of thing that gets the response. So Jesus has done a lot of miracles along the way, but none greater than this resurrection from the dead. No doubt a picture of the great resurrection to follow just a week or so later. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and then he walks to Jerusalem. And so as he comes to Jerusalem from Bethany, a great crowd is coming with him, and they're all worked up and shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now Jesus has done most of his miracles kind of in backwoods, backwater, Galilee. But if you'll follow along, he's, he's kind of walked out and come to Avondale and done this miracle before he walks into downtown. He's headed in Jerusalem, and this one's right outside of town, and everyone hears about it. So the crowds are amped up, and they're ready to welcome their king. But the crowds also teach us something about human nature. The crowds are excited, they're cheering, but they're just like us. They're ready to embrace a king who will give them what they want, but they aren't prepared to accept this king on his own terms. You see, we all want a king who will make us rich. We all want a king who will make us happy, who will make us healthy, who will give us a standard of living that we're looking for, but a king who comes like this, a king who comes with his own demands, a king we can't shape according to our own desires, that's a king that's harder to accept. You see, they were looking for the Plato king. I borrowed this from my son this morning. But you know, Plato is a cool substance because you can kind of make, if you're good with it, I'm not really good with it, you can make of it what you want. I can make two things with Play-Doh. I can make a ball and I can make a snake. That's about it. <laughs> but if you're really good, you, you can make Play-Doh whatever you want. In fact, if you pound your fists into it, it, it takes upon the shape of your fist. It, co- it conforms itself to whatever it touches. And a lot of times we come to Jesus and we come with a set of expectations, a set of demands, and what we demand is, Jesus, you conform yourself to the image that I create. And that's what this crowd does. They come with a picture, they come with an image, and and they expect Jesus to conform himself to the image they're creating. But Jesus isn't a king like this. Jesus is a king who comes on his own terms, and as he's just said, he does not come to be served, but to serve. He comes to die, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so within a week, this crowd goes from adoration, Hosanna to the king, to revulsion, crucify him, crucify him, because they're creating a king in their own image. But let me ask you this, if Jesus is a king that we create according to our desires, who is really the king? If we create the king, if we demand the king, and we come with our set of expectations, our set of demands, our set of rules for this king, who is really ruling this kingdom? Jesus doesn't come as that kind of a king. Jesus comes and he bids us like him to serve. He bids us, like him, to empty ourselves. 
He bids us like him to take up our cross and follow him. Jesus is a king, but he's not the king we'd create. But the good news of the gospel is he is a king who can do far beyond anything we can imagine. We're going to look at three different accounts this morning that that teach us this. And the first thing we see is that Jesus is a king we don't expect. Jesus is a king we don't expect. Jesus sends a couple of his disciples to a nearby village to get a donkey for him to ride into Jerusalem. Luke tells us that these animals are tied right up near the edge of this village. It might be Bethany. We don't know. It's some nearby village. And the the disciples go to the entrance of the village, and they find tied up there this donkey and her colt. Well, in Zechariah chapter 9, the passage that Liz read earlier, the prophet gives a beautiful prediction of this coming king. The king is coming, and he will bring salvation with him, but he comes as a king that we don't expect. He comes riding a donkey. He's humble. The way Zechariah says it, the war horse is cut off. This isn't a king riding on a war horse with his bow and arrow and his sword. He comes, but he comes to rule with peace. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus comes to establish a kingdom, but it's not the kingdom we expect. The Jews have been looking for a king for centuries. They remember the glories of David and Solomon. And they want someone to restore that glory. And Jesus comes and says, yes, indeed, someone greater than Solomon is here, but he's not the king they expect. It's a completely different kind of kingdom. You see, David rules a region, a land. Jesus comes to reign in our hearts. So the disciples complete this task. They make a saddle from their cloaks, and Jesus rides into Jerusalem. In 2 Kings chapter 9, a king named Jehu is being crowned a king, and on that day as he enters to ascend the throne, the people come before him cheering, and they throw their cloaks on the ground. Every man took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. They blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So there's a reenactment of this kingly ceremony as Jesus enters the city. So Matthew quotes from Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. The king is coming. He owns salvation. Yet though he comes mounted on a steed, he doesn't come to dominate. He comes in humility. He's going to ascend a throne, but this throne is a cross. He'll wear a crown, but it's no crown of gold. It's a crown of thorns. The robe they put on him is a robe of shame. This king isn't like other kings. The crowd is caught up in the moment. Matthew tells us that Jesus is surrounded by the crowd. In verse 9, he says the crowd's in front of him, the crowd's behind him. They're so caught up that they're, they're shouting. Remember the blind men as as he left Jericho. What did they shout? Hosanna to the son of David. And now the crowd takes up this chant. The structure of the passage tells us this is likely a crowd chanting back and forth. One side sings Hosanna and the other says the son of David. And the the other side says Hosanna. They're chanting back and forth. The Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118, are the Hallel Psalms, are songs of praise to God. Celebrating the Passover feast and the Feast of Tabernacles. Listen to this in Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Hosanna means save us. 
So these people are singing, Hosanna, we pray. Oh Lord, Hosanna, give us success. Jewish teachers taught that Psalm 118 is about the final redemption brought by the Messiah, so the people are chanting, the Messiah is here. Yet they don't really realize what it is they're saying. You ever have that experience where you're singing, maybe a song of praise, and you don't really think about what it is you're saying? I mean, they're not the first people or the only people to make this kind of error, are they? You ever have this moment where you're singing along and, and yet we declare truth about Jesus, yet we fail to worship Jesus in our hearts? We say, holy, 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 without comprehending what it means for God to be holy. We see the Lord high and lifted up in our words, and yet in our hearts we still exalt ourselves as king. We craft a king in our own image when Jesus will, be not, will not be crafted according to our whims. But it doesn't just happen when we sing, does it? I mean, we know the rubber meets the road when, when, when Jesus is king, when, when it meets, the, when it rubs against the grain of our lives. It's like trusting Jesus with your kids. You know, when you're little, you, you worry about what they'll be when they'll grow up. Are you a good enough mom? Are you doing enough? Are you giving your kids enough? Are you caring for them enough? Or, 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 or are you stern enough? You know, are you spoiling them? Are, are you going the other way? You know, it's like one day you feel like you're too strict, one day you feel like you're too liberal, and you can't be happy no matter what. Just trusting God with your kids. Or then they get old, older, and they, you know, start to fly a little bit on their own. And they make stupid mistakes. Like you did. Maybe not even as stupid as the ones you made. But trusting God with our children is one of the hardest things. And we could know in God's word, God is a sovereign, good king, but it's hard to trust him with the keys to our lives. Or it's easy to trust God when things are going well, but, but what about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, going to work, and you feel the effects of that curse, the curse on work. I mean, you're working by the sweat of your brow, and there's no blessing in it. It's heartache. You hate it. You dread it. Can you trust God's goodness, or do we resent what Jesus has given us? You see, it's a simple thing to say, Jesus is king. It's another thing altogether to live that out by faith, to accept from God's hand. And you can't truly know if you're worshiping Jesus as king unless there's another master vying for your loyalty. I mean, we don't ultimately prove that Jesus is king by singing that he's king when everyone else is singing too. We demonstrate that Jesus is our king by following him even when life screams at us that we shouldn't. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, Matthew tells us the whole city is worked up. When he enters Jerusalem, the whole crowd is stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, if you think people are worked up now, wait till what happens next. Read with me in verse 12. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it's written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. 
Have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. John chapter 2 tells us that Jesus cleanses the temple with a whip and he drives out the money changers. That's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This event is at the end of Jesus' ministry. We think it's likely that this is the second time that Jesus has done this. John tells us about one. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us about another. Well, there's no more holy grail in Jewish culture than the temple. Jesus walks into the city as king, but the people find out quickly he is a king we can't control. Jesus confronts our idols. When he walks into Jerusalem in the last week of his life before he dies, he goes straight to the heart of Jewish culture, Jerusalem. And then he goes straight for the heart of Jewish worship, the temple. And he wrecks their idea of what it means to worship. He throws out the merchants and the shops. Now, we often think of the temple as a building. And it is a building, but it's much more than a building. It's, it's a complex. As you approach Jerusalem, as, as Jesus and his disciples did with him, you would no doubt see that, that the temple dominates the skyline of Jerusalem. You can see it from far away. Now, this isn't even the first glorious temple. This is the one that, that Herod rebuilt, but this temple is still the most magnificent building in Jerusalem. And as you get closer, you would find that the temple isn't merely a building. It's a series of structures, a complex. And around the outside of the temple here is a barrier that, you, that can be easily passed. It's what you call the court of the Gentiles, this open area on the outside. This is the area, no doubt, where these merchants are selling. As you enter beyond this court of the Gentiles, you come to another open area inside the walls, the court of women. That's how far women could go. You go beyond that, and the men could go to the sanctuary, the, the inner place. But then in the very center of the temple is the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Well, it's no doubt along the outside that these people are buying and selling. As you came to the temple, uh, Jewish law prescribed a temple tax. So you'd come and pay a tax, or you'd come and make an offering. Now, now those Jewish merchants are no fools, and so they'd only accept a certain kind of coinage. Now, in the Roman Empire at, at this time, merchants from Tyre or Tyrian coinage is, is what's widely accepted because they were known to be very accurate in the amount of gold or silver in their coin. In other words, if you got a, a coin from Tyre, you knew it was the right kind. And so you'd have these exchange merchants around the temple in this courtyard, and they would exchange money. So I don't know, if you came from Galilee and you brought with you some, some form of currency that wasn't accepted, you could exchange it on the way in. Or if you traveled from a great distance around the empire and you came there to offer a sacrifice, it wasn't necessarily practical to bring your own animal with you all that way, and so you could purchase one at the temple. Well, there's a place for commerce, but it shouldn't be in a place of worship. So Jesus wrecks the place and drives out the merchants, and he quotes from Isaiah 56, "'My house shall be called a house of prayer.'" So Jesus then takes these prophet centers and he replaces them with ministry to the needy, verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now this is amazing. Moments before, people are making money here and now Jesus is ministering to the needy. He's taking people who, whose lives are broken and hopeless and he's healing them. This should make you happy, but verse 15, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out, Hosanna, they were indignant. There's a well-known uh, kid's story, The Emperor's New Clothes. 
Uh, this story has to do with a very, uh, a, a man who postures himself as a skilled tailor, but he really doesn't have any idea how to make clothes. And so the emperor wants a new set of robes, and it's time to design these robes, and he brings in this man who's reputed to be this great tailor, but he, he's really not. And he spends weeks and months measuring precisely, taking great detail, and, 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 and he's going to bring out these beautiful new robes at the, at the end of this process. Well, he comes, and because he can't really do the work, he has nothing, but he pretends to hang on the emperor, his new robes, and the emperor goes parading around town in his birthday suit. And as he's marching down the street, the people are all commenting how beautiful his new robes are until a child cries out, he's not wearing any clothes. At which point everyone begins laughing and pointing out what everyone could see before. You see, children have the gift of seeing the obvious even when we miss it. And that's what happens here. The eternal Son of God is doing miracles in the temple. And the religious leaders are complaining about the songs the young people are singing. So Jesus quotes Psalm 8, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you prepared praise. The most committed, the most mature religious people completely missed Jesus. And yet the children cry out in praise. We sometimes are so committed to what we think about what God says in his word that we miss what God actually says. Sometimes we're so committed to a tradition or a way of thinking about Christianity that we actually miss the essence of what it means to follow Christ. Jesus, the true temple, stands in the middle of a building that's going to be destroyed a few decades from now. Yet Jesus, the true temple of God, willingly gives his life for us he will die and rise again in three days. You see, the temple in Jerusalem isn't ultimately about a building. It's pointing to a greater temple. It's like this. Imagine, I don't know, you're a music lover, and your favorite band is coming to the Coliseum in North Charleston. You hear this, you buy tickets, you're pumped, you're excited, and then the big day comes. It's some weekend out in February, it's a Saturday night. You show up, and on the big side of the building, it's advertising. Your band is here. And then you spend that evening gazing up at the sign. Now, inside the building, there's a band playing. It's your favorite group, but you're outside staring up at the sign. That's what's going on here. Jesus is here. The temple is here. And these people are, all they can see is the sign pointing to the greater temple. All they can see is this little old building when the Son of God in flesh is standing before them. They completely miss Him. You see, the temple is no longer the dwelling of God. Rather, God has come to be with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. The new temple is here, but no one sees. No one recognizes but a few kids in the middle of this building. Unlike the old temple that will be torn down, this new temple is a living, breathing human being. And rather than God's people filling that temple in this new temple, God fills us with his spirit. And through his spirit, we become the temple of God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. You are the temple of God. Now, a lot of times we think of that like, I am. But that's not what Paul says. He says, y'all are the temple of God. We together are the place where God dwells with his people. It's not merely I get to be the temple. We are God's temple through Christ by his spirit. 
And this building isn't the dwelling place of God. God dwells in the people who worship in this building. I mean, it's easy in any generation to worship things instead of the Creator, to worship traditions that we associate with the Savior rather than the Savior Himself. What traditions or ways of doing church might lead us to miss what God says or who Jesus is? He's a king we can't control. Finally, we'll see that he is a king we should, indeed, we must worship. Verses 18 through 22. Matthew 21, 18. In the morning, as Jesus was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Well, Luke 21 tells the same story as a parable. So what Jesus is doing now is he's taking a parable and he's living it out. He's acting it out. Some people call this an, an enacted parable. Well, Jesus visits Jerusalem, he travels outside and stays with his friends outside the city each night in Bethany. And on this two-mile walk, as Jesus is walking between the city and the village outside, he sees a fig tree in the distance. Now, this fig tree is full of leaves, and Jesus walks up to it expecting that it will also be full of figs. You see, the way that uh, the, the, the fig tree life cycle works in Israel is that figs actually bud in the winter. So it's, it's cold, and the first thing to appear on the tree is not leaves, but is, is, is the, the buds of the figs. So they're not, they're not ripe yet, but then when the leaves actually show up on the tree, what it tells you, you should be able to eat those figs. So when you see a fig tree with leaves on it there, you should expect to be able to find something to eat on it, and yet when Jesus shows up, there's no fruit. They're just leaves. So Jesus then curses the tree in verse 19. May no fruit ever come from you again. Jesus takes a well-known symbol of God's judgment, a fig tree, and he illustrates something that's about to happen. You see, the fig tree is used over and over again in Scripture to illustrate God's judgment on the nations. Isaiah 28.4, Joel 1.7, Micah 7.1, Hosea 2.12, which says, I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees. Jesus didn't pick a random fruit tree. He picked a tree that they'd be familiar with, an image that, that they know well as an Israelite. It'd be like someone torching an American flag or someone plucking the, e the, the feathers off of a bald eagle. He's taking a well-known symbol and he's using it as an illustration. The tree looks from a distance like it should have fruit, but you get close and there is no fruit. The Jews in the temple have all the appearance of worshiping God, but when you inspect their lives up close, there is no fruit. You see, to profess faith in God without showing fruit is to demonstrate that we're like the fig tree. And then we'll receive God's judgment. Now, when we come to the Bible, there's some things in the Bible that aren't clear. They're hard to figure out. But one thing is really clear. If you die without Jesus, you will receive God's judgment. 
And we know from Scripture that when we have faith in Christ, we have a life of fruit that shows that we have faith in Christ. I mean, God's Word offers no assurance to those who claim faith in Christ but live in ways that are contrary to what God actually says. And so we have these things. If we don't have faith in Christ, we will die under God's judgment like this fig tree withers. It's a picture of something greater. And so if you're here this morning without faith in Christ or without the fruit to show that you have faith in Christ, that you have a relationship with Christ, would you turn? Would you turn from your sin under God's judgment and place your faith in Jesus? And Jesus closes this passage with an incredible promise. Verse 21, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and don't doubt, You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. There's a mountain to the south of Jerusalem, shaped like a volcano. Uh, Herod the Great wanted to build a fortress. And so he literally had slaves take a nearby hill and, and build it on top of this mountain. They literally moved a mountain. Now Herod, being a humble guy, named this after himself Herodian. But no doubt took tens of thousands of hours of slave labor to do this. And Jesus says that you can accomplish a greater work merely by praying to God. What kind of faith could do this? Faith that doesn't doubt. It's the same thing that James 1 says. If you lack wisdom, ask God in faith with no doubting. Jesus goes on to say, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. You see, Jesus, not the temple, is the object of true faith. He, not the temple, is the true hope of Israel. It means that when we trust him, even if everything around us screams that we should not, he can do far beyond anything that we can imagine. I mean, as Paul says in Romans 8, if God who forgives our sins through Christ has done this, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This means that if you know Christ through faith, you make Christ a treasure of your heart, you can ask God for anything and he will do it. And the key is by making Christ our treasure, we align ourselves, we align our desires with God's desires. And so you, you pray with a view toward God's greatness in Christ, you'll be asking things that God already wants to answer. So make Christ your treasure. And if wanting Jesus shapes your prayers, then stop praying shoddy little prayers. I mean, what Jesus says is, ask in faith and you will receive, even if it means moving a mountain. The way John Newton put it, same guy who wrote Amazing Grace, 1779, he wrote these words, you're coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring. For his grace and his power are such that no one can ever ask too much. I mean, aren't we amazing? We at the same time expect too much of God and we won't ask God. We live with this like life of frustration. God, if you're good, how could you do this? God, if you're gracious, how could you treat me this way? God, if you're love, how could I feel this way? And then we sit here and God says, I'm here. I'm a king. I can do far beyond anything that you could ask or imagine. Just ask. God, you're not there. God, you're not real. God, you're not good. Yet Jesus says, if you ask in faith with no doubting, you can never ask too much. But we're prayerless 
faithless people. And what does Jesus say? You have not because you ask not. Brothers and sisters, God is a God who delights in hearing the prayers of his people. God is a God who is far more able to answer our prayers than we are willing to pray them. Let's go to our king and ask him. We can never ask too much. So let's take a moment now. We'll respond to God's word in repentance and faith. Perhaps you need to ask God to save your soul. Perhaps you need to ask God to answer a prayer, but I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's go to him now.